All right, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please turn with me to Romans chapter 1. So excited to be able to say that. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in a chair in front of you nearby. And so I would encourage you, please grab one. We want you to become very familiar with your Bibles. And uh, Romans, man, what a wonderful book. I, I couldn't be more excited about this. And it's, it was hard to shift from Acts to Romans because it's just two totally different styles of writing. One is a narrative. And so it's a story. It's, it's historical. You read large portions and kind of hit the high points. But with, uh, with epistles, letters, like we're getting into with Romans, it's totally different. It's didactic. It's, it's a lot of teaching. The, the author is very intentional about that. So today we're only going to cover the first verse in the first uh, chapter. Actually, the first word of the first verse. That's as far as we're going to get. I'm kidding. Okay, so you can breathe easy. We're not going to go that slow. And I know some pastors who do, believe it or not. And so uh, we won't be doing that. But we are looking at the first seven verses today. This is the, the I call it the gospel greeting from Paul. And uh, let me just say this. You know, the gospel is amazing. And a lot of times, this is very unfortunate, people treat the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, like it's for unbelievers or beginners. But once you put your faith in Christ, now we can move on from the gospel and we can get into the deeper things. Now let's just get into to teaching. And that, that couldn't be further from the truth. And some people may not say that, but they still kind of do that. And, and in the last couple of years, I have kind of had a... Uh, an awakening in my heart to just how wonderful the gospel is and how it is important for for everyone at every period okay it's important for the unbeliever because that is the truth that is the way to salvation but it's important to the christian too on so many levels so the gospel never gets old there are so many wonderful blessings of god that we enjoy because of the gospel and that's what's really going to come out in this first chapter of romans uh, Paul planted, uh, actually, excuse me, Paul did not plant this church. In fact, he had not been to Rome at the point that he wrote this letter. He was in Corinth in his third missionary journey, and he felt the need to write to the Christians there in Rome. It's likely that the church may have been founded as far back as Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit fell on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 people came to Christ. There were a lot of visitors there from outside of Jerusalem because it was a feast and a lot of people had made a pilgrimage there. So it's uh, reasonable to think that some Jewish uh, believers came from Rome, uh, converted to Christianity and went back and the church was born there in Rome. So they had a pretty solid foundation. They had quite a reputation. And Paul is not writing a corrective letter to them. This is a gospel masterpiece. This is a doctrinal masterpiece. It is truly the jewel and the crown of the New Testament. I forget who said that. I didn't come up with that but one of the early church fathers did. And this book has been transformational for so many historical people throughout the years that we know well. For instance, Augustine in the, in the mid-300s, he was one of the first real theologians of the church. And so much of our theology was framed by this giant of the faith. And he was converted because of Romans. As he was struggling with his sin issues, he, uh, I won't get into the whole story, but long story short, he came in contact with this letter 
and it changed everything. And his life was never the same. And then a thousand years later, Martin Luther, you know, he was uh, part of the, the Protestant Reformation. He was a, a Bible teacher, he was a scholar, and he wasn't even saved. He didn't even know the Lord. In fact, he lived under the weight of God's judgment and condemnation, and he didn't love God he hated God until he came into contact with Romans. And he was actually teaching this book to his students and he came across the line. He could not escape it. The just shall live by faith. And that changed everything. He understood that his justification came by faith in Christ. It had nothing to do with his works. And there have been so many other others that were impacted by this book John Wesley he was one of the one of the people who founded the Methodist movement John and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield they were the framers of the Methodist church that movement and John Wesley came to Christ through the book of Romans so many others that I could name to you and and this is so exciting to me to think that this book throughout the ages has made such a tremendous impact on individuals, on the church, and now we have the privilege of going through this book together. Amen? And so if you stick it out, if you hang with us, and we get through this together, I'm telling you something, it's a promise I can make to you with confidence that God will change your life. God will do a fresh work in your life. And so I'm excited. I am ready. And Paul really starts this whole thing out by talking about the gospel, the good news. Now, he's going to spend quite a bit of time talking about the bad news. But before he does, he's going to start with this introduction to the Roman Christians here, and he's going to kind of outline the good news. And as I said, this is a a greetings to the church, so I've titled this Gospel Greetings. So let's read together verses 1-7, through and then I'll pray and we'll dig in. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which He promised before through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through Him we have received grace, and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for His name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love You. We love Your Son. We love You, Lord Jesus. We love Your Word, and we thank You that we have the assurance that You are here and that You are moving in our hearts, You're moving in our minds, in our lives. And I pray that You would have Your way in here today. As we open the Scriptures, God, would You please open our eyes and open our hearts and open our ears. Lord, we want to hear You, God. We want to know Your touch, Lord. We want to gaze upon Your beauty and we want to be changed Lord, we want to be more like You. And I pray, God, that even in this moment, Lord, that we would be changed and that we wouldn't be the same as we were when we came into this room. And so I thank You for the book of Romans. 
And I pray that You would be exalted, that You would be glorified as we set our hearts and our minds on You. And we thank You in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Alright, so first we're going to be looking at God's servant. God's servant. Verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. So by now we know Paul very well, don't we? Most of us here, we've, we've uh, gone through the, the book of Acts together. We just finished that last week. So we've been tracking with Paul for several months now. But in a nutshell, he was Saul of Tarsus originally. Highly educated, very ambitious, very zealous. He was a Pharisee and he hated Christians. He hated the church. He was a persecutor of the church. That was his business. And he was very serious about it. And as he was on his way to further persecute and have Christians arrested and hauled back to Jerusalem, he was struck to the ground by a blinding light. And we know that was the Lord. The Lord intervened in Saul's life in that moment. And at that point, he surrendered to Christ. He asked two questions. One, who are you? And Jesus told him, he said, I am Jesus of Nazareth whom you are persecuting. And then the second question he asked is, what do you want me to do? And that's a very good question to ask. That was the right question to ask. And so he, Jesus gave him instructions and that was it. He was radically converted to Christianity and he became one of the most world-renowned missionaries this world has ever known. And so that was the Apostle Paul. His Jewish name was Shaul and uh, Hebrew, but his Roman name, because he had Roman citizenship, was Paulus, Paul. And so that was what he went by. He was the, uh, the, the apostle to the Gentiles, so he, he went by that name. So we know him as the beloved apostle Paul. And so then he says, I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ, first and foremost. That was what Paul saw himself as. He was a slave to Christ. And that's what that word means, bondservant. Most times in the New Testament, it's rendered bondservant instead of slave, and it takes some of the edge off of it because we hear the word slave and we don't like that. And I understand that, especially with American history and, and all that slavery was, but I think this could be one of the best designations of what it is to be a Christian. He is our Lord. He is our Master. We do what He tells us to do. He owns us. We were bought by the precious blood of Jesus there on the cross. And we have surrendered ourselves to His Lordship and we are His forevermore. Now when Paul uses this word, he may be using it in the Jewish sense. And the idea of the, the Jewish word is voluntary service. Right? Uh, you had someone who was a slave in the Old Testament but you know what? There were provisions made in the Old Testament for that slave. There, there would come a point in time where that slave could be set free. But if that slave decided, you know what? I love my master. I love the life that I have with my master. And I want to serve him forever. They could do that. And they could, they could make that vow. And they would pierce their ear. And that would be a symbol of the fact that they had given themselves completely to their owner for life. And they have, in a sense, sold themselves into... Uh, permanent slavery to their master, and in a lot of ways, that that is true of the Christian. You know, we we have surrendered ourselves to the Lord. We love the Lord, 
We know that we need the Lord. We're so grateful for Him. We wouldn't want to go anywhere else. Where else can we go? He is the Lord. He is the Master. He is the King. And yet, He's our friend. You know, He doesn't treat us like that. I think we should see ourselves a little bit more like that. We, you know, in this Western democracy, we have rights. Don't you know that? I got rights. And I have a choice in every matter, and I should have a say in every single matter. And I think that has really crept into the church. I think we've lost sight of the fact that Jesus is the Lord of the church. Amen? And we are ultimately slaves to Christ. We've been bought, and we are His. And, uh, but He doesn't treat us like that. He's a loving Lord. He's a loving friend. And... God is our Father, and it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing for us. You know, as I said, Paul might have been using this in the Jewish sense, but these are Romans that are hearing this, Roman Christians, and this would have been rather appalling to them. At this point in Rome, it's estimated that there were about 60 million slaves. And slaves were seen as property and nothing more. And they could be... They were totally dispensable, and it was up to the master to decide that, and the master had every right to do what he wanted to with with that slave. And as I said, they had no rights, and if a slave were to to run away or or anything like that, they could be crucified. Uh, At the the worst, at the least, they could be branded on the forehead with a symbol that was fugitivos in the Greek, which meant fugitive. And so when the Romans heard this, that was probably startling to them to hear that. The great Apostle Paul, the one that they had probably heard about all these years, is a slave, a slave to Jesus. You know, at one point, Paul went so far in 1 Corinthians 4, 1, to refer to himself the word there. He says, "...let a man so consider us servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God." That word servant there is huperetes, which means under rower. And so he was referring to himself as the one who was at the bottom of a, of a ship that was pulling the oars. I'm sure many of us have seen um, that movie, and it escapes my mind. What is the movie? Ben-Hur. Okay. And so that's an under rower. And Paul said he called himself that. And I, I, I like that personally. I think we need to keep that perspective because... Um, it may be very subtle, guys, but I think that we can slip into a place where we're on the throne and we forget that Jesus is the Lord. And instead of us walking in humility and exalting Him, we're looking for notoriety. We're looking for recognition. We're looking for affirmation. We're looking for something and we're not exalting Christ. We're not serving Him as, as Lord and Master. You know what I mean? And believe me when I tell you guys, this is, it's, it's happening way more than we realize all around us, and I, I fear in our, our own lives. And so we have to get that in check. And so Paul said, look, first and foremost, I am a bondservant of Jesus Christ. I serve Him. He is the Lord. He is my Master. He's a good Lord, a faithful Master, and my life is His forever. Well, Paul's calling was to be an apostle. He said, called to be an apostle. He's a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. And the word apostle here is in the New Testament, it's 
typically designated to the twelve, right? The twelve disciples of Jesus who became apostles, and it means sent. That's what the word apostle means. And so in one sense, these guys were uh, messengers of Christ who were given authority to go out and to plant churches, to do miracles, so on and so forth. So there was a certain level of credibility and authority that came with that as an apostle. But honestly, guys, it's still to say that you are sent means what? It means that there's a sender and that they are subject to the sender. So even with that, that great title that we hear, the Apostle Paul, that still means that he's second. He is not the guy. He is not the one. The Lord Jesus Christ is, and He is simply His messenger. But that was His calling in life. Paul was called by God to be an apostle. And can I tell you something, guys? We all have a calling on our lives. We all do. Do you know what your calling is? You know, God has called me to to be a pastor in this church. Um, He's called me to be a, a husband and a father. He's called me to be a number of things. And you all have callings too. And you need to know what that is. And you need to own that. And so you might be a house mom. That is a wonderful thing. And you are, that is your calling. Glorify God with it. Walk in it. You know, you might be a teacher. You might be a plumber. You might be a police officer. You might be a whatever it is. Fill in the blank. But you need to know what has God uniquely wired you for? What has God called you to? Honor Him in it. Glorify Him in it. Know what your calling is. Thank God for it. Don't apologize for it. And own it. Amen? And then he says that he was separated to the gospel of God. Separated to the gospel of God. And the idea of separated, it means uh, set apart or consecrated would be a, a good Bible word there. And so when we, and, and really it's the same idea as holy. When we talk about holy, God is holy. There's no one like Him. There's nothing like Him. He is totally separate. You following me? He is set apart. And so as Christians, when we are called out of the world, which we used to live in the world, and that, that was us, God called us out of the world and called us into His church. So we're no longer of the world. We're, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. We're Christians, and we've been called to, to live a different way, and we serve a different king. We serve the Lord Jesus. And so we're set apart in that respect. And so Paul says, I have been set apart for the gospel. Now it's interesting, Paul was a Pharisee, and that word Pharisee essentially meant separated ones. Those guys were like the back to the Bible people. And in the beginning they had a good start. They started out well, but as so often happens, Power corrupts, right? And those guys really went sideways and they became extreme legalists and hypocrites and Jesus certainly had his battles with those guys. But Paul was a separate one in Judaism and he abandoned all of that and now he was separated to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was what his life was about, folks. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And in Philippians chapter 3, Verse 7, it says this, and Paul is speaking. He just listed out all of his credentials, all of it in his old life, all the things that he really felt like he had going for him in life. And then he says this, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. 
Yet, indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. And so everything that Paul thought he had going for him, you know, everything that he thought really had him ahead in life, he realized meant absolutely nothing next to the surpassing worth of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And he abandoned all of that. He no longer put stock in the fact that he was of the tribe of Israel, of of the tribe of Benjamin. He no longer saw being a Pharisee and keeping the law as something that had him ahead in the game. His education, none of that mattered anymore. He put that all away and said one thing matters, and that is Jesus Christ and His Gospel. And Paul was absolutely sold out to the Gospel. I wonder how many of us in here have had that experience where we came to the place where we realized that what we were living for was a lie. That what we were living for would not provide what we were searching for. And we realized that it meant nothing next to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. And then we turned away from that and we became separated to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, Paul went on to say that his life had been totally given to what he called the Gospel of God. This is the Gospel of God. And the significance there is that it originated from God. It's not some invention of man, right? And people would like to tell us that. People would like to say that man came up with that. Can I just tell you something? Man would never come up with the Gospel, okay? Because this is what man comes up with. We're all basically good, and we're all okay, and we're all right, and we can all believe very different things, but in the end, if we try hard enough and just come together and, and do good, that we'll all make it in the end. That's, that's really human theology. That's, what, that's, that's humanistic theology. The Gospel says that we all stand condemned, the whole world, before a holy God, and that we have to, we have to give an account for our sins, which are many but that there's salvation in one. That God, because of His grace, because of His mercy, sent His Son Jesus to pay that penalty that we owed on the cross. And then we could be forgiven and we could know the love of God, the forgiveness of God. No man would come up with that. No man would come up with that. And this is the Gospel of God. Well, the word Gospel here is euangelion in the Greek. That's the word. And it simply means... Can anybody tell me? Good news. That's right. It means good news. And in the ancient world, it was a term that messengers would herald on behalf of the king. They would herald to the people. Euangelion, if there was a a good message to bring to the people. Maybe the birth of a child, of the king, or or anything like that. Or if a battle had been won, a messenger would run back to the king and cry out, Euangelion, good news, victory. Right, And so that was how that word was once used. But then it became something totally different. It became the good news of God. The Gospel of God. And, and what is the good news? You know, if, if you hear this and this doesn't really mean much to you, you think, okay, yeah, yeah, I've heard gospel. I've, I've heard of God. That's all fine. Why do I need to know that? Well, what that tells me is you don't really know the, the bad news. Okay, And I already kind of hit on that a little bit, but 
the thing is, and the Bible is clear, and Romans is going to go very deep into this, and uh, here in a couple weeks we'll kind of get there, but we are all separated from God outside of Christ. We were dead in our trespass and sins. And that was bad. And everything else that's bound up into that, everything that our lives were before Christ, everything that our decisions led us to, that was bad. And the good news is that God came to save us from that, to restore our lives, to set our feet on a new path, and to give us a new hope and a new trajectory in life. And ultimately, heaven is our destination. And glory with the Lord forever. And so that's the good news. That's the good news, that God saves sinners. That God saves men and women who are dead in their sins, men and women who stood before God to be judged. And that was all of us. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, then that is where you are at today. And I, I say that you know, with as much compassion as I can. Look, if you don't know Christ, then you do stand accountable to God for your sins. And you're going to have to pay for that. Those sins have to be paid for because God is perfectly just. He is perfectly holy. And He cannot let sin go unpunished. He can't. But God is perfectly gracious and perfectly merciful and perfectly loving. And so He made a way for those sins to be punished on His Son, on His beautiful one and only Son, so that we wouldn't have to know that. We wouldn't have to experience that. We wouldn't have to pay for our sins. They've been paid for by another. And we can live under the grace and the blessings of a Heavenly Father. Amen? That is the good news. That is the good news of the Gospel. Well, guess what? This was God's promise. Verse 2. Which He promised before through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So this was God's promise all the way back from the beginning. Did you know in Genesis 3.15, God made a promise of the Gospel when He was talking to the woman and, uh, and the curse in chapter 3, and he basically said that her seed and the serpent's seed would be at enmity, and that he would bruise his heel, the serpent, but that ultimately the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. And I won't get into all of the nuances of that, but that is, that is a prediction of Christ all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And that is known as the Proto-Evangelion. It's the first Gospel. And so, all the way from the beginning of Genesis throughout all of the Scriptures, that is the theme. Christ Jesus. Isaiah 53 talks about the suffering servant. Psalm 22, it says that my hands and my feet, they pierced. That was a thousand years before Roman crucifixion even existed when that was written. And so there are all of these amazing prophecies throughout the Old Testament that, are, that tell of Christ. And then there are all the typologies. You have the Passover lamb, right? They would take this spotless lamb and they would kill it and put the blood on the doorpost and then the, the angel of death would pass over that house because of the blood of the lamb. If that's not a picture of Christ, I don't know what is because when He came onto the scene, John the Baptist shouted out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
You have Rahab, her scarlet cord. You have the spies that came in to spy out the land in Joshua chapter 2. And Rahab hid them in her house and didn't tell the, the people there that they were there and they escaped. And so she asked for mercy that they would spare her family when they came in to conquer. And they said, we will do this, which you have asked of us, but you have to hang this scarlet cord in your window. Basically as a marker that this was a place that was to receive mercy. Even that is a, a picture, a type of Christ. And then I, obviously I talked last week about David and Goliath. What greater picture is there than this enemy, this enemy that is seemingly unbeatable, and that is death, that is sin. And then you have David, but we have the greater David, Jesus Christ, who has conquered over sin and death on our behalf while we did nothing but stand in the corner and shiver in our boots, right? And Jesus conquered. And so all throughout the Old Testament, there are prophecies, typologies, all of these wonderful pictures that point to the fact that Jesus was coming and that God had a plan and that He was going to save His people and that is the central theme throughout all of the Scriptures. And then we're told that Jesus came through the kingly line of David. Now that's important for a couple of reasons. One, this is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. It was said that He would be that. But two, it verifies Jesus was a literal historical person. Some people try to refute that, but He simply was. He was... Here he walked among his people. He was a real person that lived at a real period of, of time in history. He really came in the flesh. And some people have tried to dispute that over the years. And they would say that Jesus wasn't really flesh. He was more like a phantom being. And they came up with all kinds of bizarre ideas about Jesus. But he really was a f human flesh and blood being. And that was necessary. Why is that important? One in order for Him to really represent mankind, to be able to come and to walk in our shoes as it were and to experience the, the difficulties and the hardships that we experience and to, to be able to be compassionate. We're told that we have a faithful and a compassionate high priest. He can sympathize with our struggles, with our difficulties. But He was a representative of mankind when He died on the cross. In order to take our place, He had to be a man to suffer God's wrath on our behalf. And so it was necessary that Christ come in the flesh. And it makes it very clear here that this was God's promise of old, that Jesus indeed came in the flesh when He suffered. It was a flesh and blood sacrifice on our behalf. But then He goes on to say that, excuse me, verse 4, He was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So he was, he was uh, proven. He was proven to be the Son of God by what? The resurrection. That's what he says. So he was born of flesh. He was flesh and blood and bone, but he was also deity. He was also God. He was God in the flesh. And his, the fact that he rose from the grave was the greatest demonstration of that very truth. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it was demonstrated, it was declared to us all that He indeed was who He said He was. He was the Son of God. He was not just flesh. He was also God. God in the flesh. And that word here, when it says that He was declared to be the Son of God, it, uh, I'll read to you a quote from MacArthur here. It says, The Greek word which uh, the English word horizon comes from, it means to distinguish. 
So just as the horizon serves as a clear demarcation line dividing earth and sky, the resurrection of Jesus Christ clearly divides Him from the rest of humanity, providing irrefutable evidence that He is the Son of God. And so that has been declared. That has been demonstrated by the resurrection. And why is this important, guys? Well, I'm going to go back to this this thing about Him being flesh and blood, but also being God. That is, it's a theological term here. This one's for free. It's called the hypostatic union of Christ. Okay, you got that? The hypostatic union of Christ. And that is that He was fully God and fully man. Now, that's a mystery to us. We can't understand that. But know this, He wasn't half God, half man. Okay? He was truly flesh and blood. He was truly man. And we saw Him at times in the Gospels respond as such. He was weak. He was tired. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He wept. He was, we saw His humanity. And as I said, that's necessary uh, for Him to represent us and die on our behalf. But then He was also fully God. And that was necessary because He could not live a perfect life if He weren't God. He could not have lived a life of perfect obedience to the Father if He were any less than God. And that kind of, I'm just kind of, I don't know, I'm having fun up here today, so I'm throwing these theological words at you. The impeccability of Christ. The impeccability of Christ. Not only did He not sin, He could not sin. Okay? And so as God in the flesh, as the Son of God, He was perfect. Perfectly holy. He was able to live a life of perfection die in our place as man, and then rise again from the grave by the power of the Spirit of holiness, demonstrating that He truly was who He said He was, the Son of God, and He truly did what He said He was going to do, save us from our sins. Amen? Amen. Alright, and so this was God's gift. Verse 5. Through Him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for His name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. So through Him, through Jesus, because of the Gospel, we have received what? Grace. Amen to that. We have received grace. And that's one of those words that we hear so much that I think it loses just how special it really is. You know, we often say that it's you know, it's unmerited favor. God was kind to us when we didn't deserve it. And that is true. But honestly, it's even more than that. We, we merited disfavor. We deserved judgment and punishment. And even yet, God gave us kindness. God gave us mercy. God gave us favor. And that word there, it's charis. And it means gift, kindness, favor. And it is uh, inclined favorable towards, leaning towards to share benefit. The word is preeminently used of God's favor, freely extended to give Himself away to us. So God is leaning in. God is leaning towards us because His desire is to bless. His desire is to, to uh, provide and to really just pour goodness out upon us. That's who He is. That is His nature. God desires to bless. Did you know that? When, when God's judgment is washed away, when our sins are washed away and God's judgment is, is off of us, there's nothing now between us except us and God and pouring blessing out on us. Sometimes we can get in the way of that, right? 
Sometimes we can let our sins and our rebelliousness hinder that. But ultimately, God stands leaning in, ready to bless. That is grace. That is kindness. That is God being favorable or inclined towards us. And this was given to us through Jesus. It says, through Him we have received grace. And I I just can't emphasize this enough, guys. This should never get old to us. And I want you to listen carefully. Every good thing that you enjoy was purchased on the cross. Every good thing. Every good thing that we enjoy, it's because of the cross. It's through Jesus. Because ultimately, I think we really minimize how holy God is and just what a righteous judge He is. You know, I mean, guys, the culture that we live in and now the stuff that that we're inundated with all day, every day, the stuff that you just see on TV, for instance. I mean, you could see someone get their head smashed in and we don't even flinch. It's like, eh, yeah, you know, that's normal. But God is not that way. God is not that way at all. He is perfectly holy. I mean, He has, it's like a blazing white light of holiness. And for God to be able to allow us to have anything good in this life had to come at a price somewhere because ultimately what we had coming to us was being crushed under the weight of God's holiness. And so even for unbelievers, God has given something called common grace. It's something that the whole world enjoys. And the Scriptures talk about that. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, it says, But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God gives common grace and common blessings to to the world to enjoy. And even that is, is grace that is afforded to us through Christ. And, you know, there are so many wonderful things that we enjoy. As He said here, the rain that falls, that, that uh, brings produce or family or offspring, so many different things that the world enjoys. That in itself is a blessing of God. That is common grace. But then there is special grace. Special grace. And that is for those who are in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, it says, "...and you He made alive who are dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, who is rich in mercy..." That's verse 4 because of His great love with which He has loved us, even when we were dead in trespass and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And so that's God's special grace. And He pours that out upon those who are His own. Those who have put their trust in Christ. Those who have become new creations in Him. Those who have received the gift of the Gospel and have been changed, transformed. Now we have special grace that comes from God to walk in the newness of life. And so, God gives grace for obedience. That's, that's there in the text. Through Him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience. And praise God that He does that. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, it says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Well, I want you to catch that. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us. So God gives us 
saving grace and He gives us sustaining grace. God saves us through grace, but that same grace trains us. He grows us step by step throughout our life. That is all God's grace. He gives us grace for obedience. You know what else? God gives grace to the humble. God gives grace to the humble. 1 Peter 5 and James 4 talk about that very thing. And Proverbs and Psalms that, that God gives grace to the humble, but He opposes the proud. He opposes the proud. And I don't know about you guys, but I need grace. I need it all the time. What I don't need is opposition from God. I don't want to be opposed by God. I was thinking about this one time. A very simple illustration for opposition. I could call someone up on the stage here and tell them, don't let me get past you. Hold your hand out. I might call a big guy up here. and I'm just trying to go that way and he's blocking me. I can't get around him. I mean, think about that. God opposes the proud. You ain't getting anywhere. God opposes you. You think you're going to get around him? You think you're going to go under him? If God is standing opposite of you and He's opposing you, you're in a bad place. But God gives grace to the humble. He gives kindness. He gives favor. He gives strength. He gives blessing. He gives provision. He gives love. He gives mercy to the humble. And I don't know about you, but I need that. Anybody else in here need that? And you know what? Sometimes I, I fear Christians, we forget just how in need of that we are. You know, there's a story in Luke chapter 18. And Jesus gives a parable about a, a Pharisee and a tax collector. You know, the tax collectors were despised people of that day. And they, they were hated and they knew it. They were considered traitors and crooks. And uh, you had this Pharisee here. He was praying to God. And he said, God, I thank You that I'm not like all of these other people out here. And I'm especially not like that tax collector over there. And he starts talking about all the wonderful things that he does. And then it shifts over to the tax collector, and it says he couldn't even lift his eyes upwards to heaven. And he beat on his chest, and he cried out, God, have mercy on a sinner like me. And then Jesus said, that guy went away justified. You know, I think a lot of us start off in that place, beating on our chest, crying out, God, I'm a sinner. I have messed up so many times. I can't do it. I need you. But it doesn't take long before we become the other guy. And we're saying, thank you, God, that I am not like everybody else. And we've got to be very careful about that because we're guilty of that, many of us, myself included. And God help us because you know what God does to that person? He opposes them. Right? God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And we don't want to have that, that self-righteousness, that hypocrisy, that self-exaltation. We don't need any of that. Amen? Because Christ alone is worthy to be glorified, worthy to be exalted, worthy to be praised. And we are not. That much is obvious. And so we don't want to fall into the trap of thinking somehow that we're, we're better or that we don't need God's grace as much anymore. I think that's, that is the danger is thinking somehow that we got this now. You know, we were saved by grace, but we don't need grace anymore. I can take care of myself. I'm good. I got this. And we've got to be careful about that. That is something that is ever before us. All right, and then closing here, verse 7, God's called. The called of God. To, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So the recipients here are the, the Christians in Rome. This, these were literal people in a, in a literal place where the church existed. But this could just as easily say the church in Napa. And so as we're reading this, we need to understand that this applies to us just as much today as it did back then. And that's amazing. But such is the case. And there are three things happening here. One, the beloved of God. That's such a wonderful title for the Christian. God has set His love on us. God has set His perfect love on us. Not because we were lovely. Not because we deserved it. But because that is God. God is love and God is gracious. And He has chosen to pour His love on us. And now we are accepted in the Beloved, His Son Jesus, and we are the Beloved of God. Called, that He was called, excuse me, He called them to be saints. I talked about that earlier. That word saints, the same thing. It was set apart, holy. Called by God into this glorious salvation. This is one of the wonderful benefits of being a Christian. And then lastly, he set them apart as saints. We live for God. We're set apart to the Gospel. We have a new reason to live now. We live for Him. And then he says, grace and peace. This is Paul's standard greeting in all of his epistles. And you can't have peace without grace. That's why grace always comes first. You can't know the peace of God until you know the grace of God. And then he says, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's who it originated from. As I said earlier, this is all of God. This all came from God. God did this. God came down in the form of, of flesh through the person of His Son, Jesus. And Jesus lived a life that we could not live, died the death that we deserve, rose again from the grave, and if we put our trust in Him, we are forgiven of our sins and we are accepted as a child of God. And so this is, it originates from the Father and it is delivered to us through the Son. Amen? Alright, well we'll close right there and let's praise Jesus for this. So, uh, Missy and Cisco, if you'd come up. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank You for the Gospel. And we thank You that we have been saved, that we have been changed by it, Lord. And I pray, God, that You would use us in Gospel ministry, Lord, that we would be um, missionaries sent by You, God, to share the Gospel right where we're at, wherever we're at, God. And may we never, may we never forget how glorious the Gospel is, God. It is Your good news, and we need it. In every stage of our lives, God, we need it. And so we thank You for it afresh, God, and we praise You in the name of Jesus. Amen.